Hello and welcome to the latest Tebby podcast brought to you by the Evidence-Based Investor in conjunction with Regis Media, connecting advisors with clients. I'm Robin Powell. Our guest this week is Tim Edwards from S&P Dow Jones Indices in London. Tim is Managing Director of Index Investment Strategy. Well, welcome, Tim. Thank you uh, for joining us. So, so what exactly does that job title mean? <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for having me, and it's great to see you again. Um, so I work in a small team of researchers, and what we try to do is to help people understand how indices can be used in an investment context, as well as um, kind of what they're telling you about the world today. Um, so it's a pretty wide mandate. Another definition for what we do is we try and do interesting work that shines a light uh, on indices. Now, many of our listeners, probably most in fact, will know all about SPIVA. But for those who don't know about SPIVA, what on earth is it? <laughs> so uh, SPIVA, it's an acronym. It stands for S&P Index Versus Active. And it's a series of reports um, that come out, um, well, the main one comes out every six months in several different markets. And we use a local market database to identify, first of all, all the active funds that have been operating in a particular category, like UK equities or Danish equities or US large caps. Uh, and then we'll report all sorts of statistics. It's actually a very rich report. Most people tend to focus on the top line number, report one, uh, which reports the percentage of funds that beat the benchmark. What's really interesting is that you know you started off in the United States, but now you look at countries all around the world. Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, so the first ever SPIVA report was, was in the United States, uh, and that's just over 15 years ago now. Um, it's now extended and expanded to cover uh, the European fund market, uh, Australia, Japan, Pan-Asia, India, Latin America, and Canada. Now, when I started writing a few years ago about the shortcomings of active management, a senior manager at a well-known UK fund supermarket, he said, Robin, you keep quoting American data. Actually, the UK is different. UK managers have a proven track record of beating the market or actually better, he was suggesting, than US uh, money managers. What does your evidence actually show? Well, um, it, it's actually quite a balanced picture. But balanced, if you look at UK active funds investing in UK equities, they do in fact have a slightly better record than US managers invested in US equities. And the reasons for that uh, we can perhaps discuss, but the most important fact to highlight there is actually the, the record of UK managers is in fact better. However, that doesn't mean uh, so much as to say that the average UK active fund outperforms its benchmark. In fact, over the long term in the UK, just as in the US, um, less than half of active managers outperform. And, and what's particularly interesting, I find, about your research is this added component you have now on persistence. And that scorecard consistently shows that there is a, a lack of persistence in outperformance. Yeah, let me give you a bit of context to that. So as I said, Spiva's been around for quite some time, 15 years now uh, in the US. And the typical reaction uh, by people who use active funds is, 
in a sense, I don't care if 70% or 80% or even 90% of active funds underperform because I pick good funds and, you know, my fund's doing fine. So the, the challenge is then, okay, well, can we in some sense integrate that objection or, or, or solve for that problem? So what the persistence reports do is they look at good funds. So the way we define a good fund is, is, is a fund that has historically outperformed. And what the persistence reports do is they look at the extent to which funds that have performed well continue to perform well. Um, now, it must be said, there are other ways to identify active managers except for past track record. Um, but if skill exists and is identifiable, you would expect it to turn up in prior performance. Um, and what these reports show is that over time, it is actually not the case that just focusing on the top half of all funds or the top quartile of all funds historically uh, is really gives you any better chance of outperforming than just picking at random. And of course, the problem is you've got to identify the future winners in advance before they start outperforming. My experiences, I don't know if, if this is yours as well, but many of those who claim to be able to spot these win winners are actually just you know, very good at being able to tell you who's done well in the past. Well, one of the things that distinguishes uh, the SPIVA reports and, and persistence reports from a lot of other similar reports, for example, articles in the media, here are 20 funds in the UK and their record over the past 20 years or whatever it is. Um, what distinguishes our report is survivorship. So 10 years ago, there were many funds on sale that were available then that in the last 10 years either wound up because of underperformance or were converted into you know, a completely different kettle of fish. Um, and our reports include that earlier opportunity set. We look at the point in time, what could you have invested in then and what's their long-term record? Conversely, um, if you just look at all the funds which are alive today and have a 10 or 20 year track record, you will find that actually a lot of them did outperform. That's survivorship bias. The ones that did very badly or that didn't do well in the financial crisis, they haven't uh, continued to this date. As you were saying, the results uh, for these various SPIVA reports around the world are sort of remarkably consistent, but there are differences. You pointed out, for example, that UK managers do better in the UK than US managers do in the US. I'm intrigued by that. Where in the world are the best fund managers? Well, uh, I mean, it, it does depend uh, when you look. Uh, one of the more interesting markets uh, is the Danish fund management market. Um, so this is looking at funds uh, registered in Denmark, investing in Danish equities. And the first time we reported on that, I, I can't remember whether it was 97% or 100%, but basically every single uh, Danish fund manager was, was outperforming. And I thought, well, you know, what's going on here? Um, now, the Danish equity market is, is not the world's largest. Uh, and in fact, there is one company, uh, Novo Nordisk, which is actually, and of course it depends when you, you measure it, but it's roughly a third of the Danish equity market. Now, there are very few active managers in, in Denmark who will hold a capitalization weight, who will hold a third of their portfolio in Novo Nordisk. When Novo Nordisk does well, that benchmark is driven by that one stock and most active managers underperform. 
when Novel Nordisk doesn't do so well, you'll find statistics like 100% potentially of active managers outperforming. So there are sort of idiosyncratic examples like that. Um, what we found interesting over time is, is to sort of look at and investigate perceptions such as, you know, are emerging markets places where active managers have a better record? Or small caps, one often hears, uh, because there's perhaps less research coverage or less data available, it's a, it's a better opportunity set for active managers. Um, and there the picture has some challenging facts. So, for example, it is not the case that active traditionally does well in, in emerging markets. In fact, our data would suggest that emerging markets are very hard to find out performance. Uh, but there are some grounds uh, to say that international small caps do seem to offer a better opportunity set for active. Now, I should say, um, in terms, what is a better opportunity set? Uh, less worse. It's not the case that we're seeing year after year outperformance, but we are seeing you know, a slightly higher proportion of managers uh, getting closer to the benchmark. Now, presumably, there is such a thing as, as home advantage. So in other words, a UK fund manager is likely to do better picking UK stocks than he or she is picking, I don't know, French stocks or Australian stocks. Is that right? Um, the data would support that. Um, there are uh, a few markets when you can run this cross comparison. Um, now, of course, why you can't do it everywhere is, of course, this is statistics. We, we need a good, sort of reasonably sized sample. And there's not a lot of French funds investing in Danish equities. But there are a few categories where you really can compare like for like. Um, most of our SPIVA reports across the world have a category for uh, US large cap. So we can look at, you know, who's the best? Who's got the best record of investing in, in, in or outperforming uh, in US equities? And what you see is uh, that, generally speaking, there is a home advantage. Uh, and very often, the, uh, the, the sort of least worst category will be the home market for those fund managers. What would you say to those who... Uh, argue that you know you as a company provide uh, indices. Um, you want as many people to use those indices as possible. It's a financially advantageous to you as a company that they do so. I, I read an article by uh, my fellow blogger Barry Ritholtz recently when when he described it as you know you have a horse in this race, don't you? Is there any uh, scope for you know accusing you of of, of bias in any way? Um, so, of course, you, you, you can accuse us of whatever you like. Um, the, 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 I think here's what's important. Um, S&P Dow Jones indices uh, does produce indices. We do license those indices as benchmarks to both active and to passive fund managers. Um, and in the sense of having a horse in the race, if you like, um, we have benefited as a company from a trend towards greater transparency, uh, and passive investing because people are using our indices as the basis for investment products. Um, having said that, what we noticed quite a while ago was that the debate around where indices might be a good idea or where passive fits in the portfolio was conducted in a very emotional context. You know, I think this is good, index funds are un-American or whatever it is. Um, and what we wanted to do with Spiva was to inform the debate. Um, as an index company, as a data company, you know, our role and what the market really can expect from us 
is accuracy in measurement, measuring the markets. And we applied that philosophy to Spiva. Um, we report it every six months. We'll report those categories where active managers have done relatively well. We'll report those categories where they haven't done so well. And what we hope to do with this is to inform the debate. If I could just play devil's advocate for, for a moment. I mean, how, how hard is it to construct an index? I mean, presumably it's, it's I'm, I'm guessing, not that difficult. And, and what do you make of this trend at the moment towards so-called self-indexing? In other words, uh, fund managers choosing to save on licence fees to the likes of uh, S&P Dow Jones Indices, MSCI and, and these other uh, index providers and, and do it themselves? So there's, I, there's two parts to that question and I'll, I'll treat both parts if I may. Um, first of all, is it hard to calculate an index? Um, in, in the majority of cases for the most of the indices that you've heard of, the answer is no. Um, and not only could you yourself uh, replicate the S&P 500 on a day-to-day -day basis, you can also download our methodology, a document explaining exactly how we do. Every calculation is made publicly available online for every index that we publish. So not only is it easy to do, we also tell you exactly how to do it. Um, and that has some advantages in terms of transparency. Um, and now the second part of the question around um, so-called self-indexing. Um, so, in principle, there is, of course, nothing wrong with a fund provider or a derivatives provider from calculating their own version of an index. Um, in practice, it, there are potential conflicts of interest there in terms of a product provider also being able to determine the value of the index, what goes in, what comes out. Um, and while there is nothing inherently wrong with self-indexing, um, what we have found from a marketplace perspective is that um, there is greater comfort to be found in having that third party calculating the index, maintaining the methodology um, and offering that independent voice, if you like. Interesting. So I do want to ask you before we finish about other research that you've been doing. I, I noticed, for example, you've been researching momentum investing? Yes, uh, yes, momentum and uh, and equal weight indices and, and all okay. sorts of different oh, colours right. and, okay. and, well, and flavours. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you about that as well in a moment, but first, momentum investing? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's so the, the momentum is a, is a sort of well-known as a, as a factor, and in that sense, I mean something that both helps understand what's happening, right, you know, in terms of the behaviour and patterns of returns that you're seeing in, in stocks and markets. Sometimes you see strong trends develop. Um, it is also something which has been identified as a source of excess returns, of market-beating returns. The historical strategy of picking stocks that were performing well, somewhat astonishingly, has decades, a multi-decade record of offering out performance. So, Momentum is sort of fascinating and interesting. It's also very behavioural uh, in terms of the available explanations for what might be happening here. Um, from my research's perspective, um, what I thought was, was important was to understand not just uh, you know, what is momentum and what's it doing, but also how do you manage that. Now, the challenge for an end investor is the following. Firstly, momentum creeps up on you. 
If you build a portfolio and you don't rebalance it, over time, you will have more and more capital invested in the single best performer. So you'll find yourself exposed to momentum without doing anything. The second thing is, as I've identified uh, or explained, it is a factor to which a positive return is associated. So it's attractive from that perspective as well. It's sort of hard to miss out. Uh, and now we're getting a little bit more on, on the behavioral side. But when you think about the you know, absolute heroic performances by certain sectors or certain markets and the fear of missing out that investors can have in not participating in momentum, and you end up with, with a mix where you, know, you will have exposure to momentum, that can be a good thing. But here's the kicker. Uh, when momentum turns, when the trends change, uh, unless you're operating a very sort of high frequency or itchy trigger finger, um, they tend to fall dramatically. It's a typical bubble phenomenon. If, if bubbles tell us about anything, they tell us about momentum. Um, and so I've been looking at ways that you can participate in trends, um, but have some kind of defensive side of the portfolio that will allow you to stay the course or not take too much exposure to momentum. It's fascinating stuff. Indeed. So clearly with market cap weighting, the, the largest weightings go to the stocks with the, with the largest market cap. Uh, and usually the index is adjusted, say, twice a year. Is there a sense then in which market cap weighted indexing itself has a kind of momentum tilt? Um, that is, is actually a very deep question. <laughs> and it depends how you measure a momentum tilt. Um, so if you take the view, does it have a more um, a bigger tilt towards momentum than the market does? No, it doesn't. It's the market. Um, but does it have larger allocations in stocks that have typically performed well? By definition, the larger stocks are those that at least some point in history have outperformed their peers. Um, so as I said, momentum can creep up on you. And it is also in some sense part of the market portfolio. Um, and so, you know, you can think about, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Bear in mind, the market portfolio, capitalization, weighted collection of everything, is a, is a unique benchmark. And it's an, a unique investment strategy. And it's unique in the following sense. It tells you what's the return of the average invested dollar because it tells you what all the dollars did. Some of us can outperform the market, some of us will underperform the market, but we can't all beat the average investment. The interesting thing is one can also say that about equal weight indices. Uh, if we put aside rebalancing for a moment, absolutely. if you have you know, 500 stocks and you weight them all equally, some will do better, some will do worse, but the portfolio will achieve the average. Um, so equal weight indices, not only sort of intellectually interesting, but they can also help manage the risks that can occur from time to time when a market like Denmark ends up with a very large position uh, in a single stock or stocks. Well, I don't know if this is a trend globally, but we're certainly hearing about concentration in markets quite a lot at the moment. Um, concentration within individual sectors, but also markets as a, as a whole. Do you think that makes equal weighting worth another look? I think it, it, it definitely makes it worth another look in, in that sense of uh, asking the question, do I have quite a lot of single stock specific risk in a benchmark exposure? Um, what I will say in, I guess, quite general terms is although 
um, the U.S. market, speaking uh, as of as of now, 2018, is uh, is quite concentrated in, in a few five stocks or so. They're, they're larger weights now than they were three years ago. Um, we put out some research looking at the long-term trends uh, in statistics like concentration in the U.S. market, in the Japanese market, in the European market. And what I thought it might be interesting to share with you is, yes, although today we are slightly more concentrated than we were five years ago, we are absolutely nowhere near the levels we saw prevalent in the 1960s and 70s. Um, so concentration is something that uh, seems to ebb and flow, increases, decreases, increases when the larger stocks do very well, decreases uh, when smaller stocks do well. In those periods where concentration decreases, um, equal weight will probably do better. In a nutshell, finally, do you see equal weight becoming more popular in the future? Uh, we certainly have seen equal weight become more popular as a strategy. I, I think it is an interesting way to look at investing, um, an interesting way to think about market participation, interesting way to think about diversification. However, um, we cannot all be equal weight investors. Um, the only strategy we can all follow is, of course, tracking the market. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much indeed to Tim Edwards from S&P Dow Jones Indices in London. Thank you as well to our sponsor, Regis Media. If you're a financial advisor and you want to find out how Regis Media can help you to attract, retain and educate your clients, visit the website regismedia.com. Finally, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or on SoundCloud. And why not write a review on iTunes? It'll only take a few moments and it really will help us in educating the end investor. Until next time, from me, Robin Powell, from Tim Edwards and our producers, James Cresswell and Christina Bider, goodbye.